Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. People who are older and wealthier love to lecture us young brokies about how we should be saving and investing our money. But they don't get it. It was a different time, right? So, I've teamed up with another young'un who's going to tell us what to expect from the money that we do manage to invest. And cookery books fly off the shelves in the holiday season, although lots of them will never be touched again. So why do they still manage to entice buyers? First up, though... I invite the CMA to adopt the draft decision entitled Outcome of the First Global Stocktake. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. This morning, a historic agreement has been reached at the COP28 summit in Dubai. The UN Climate Change Conference was due to end early on Tuesday, but the talks were forced to carry on until all countries agreed. The main sticking point was the issue of fossil fuels, with many delegates and protesters demanding that the agreement should include a plan to do one thing. Phase out fossil fuels. Delegates stayed up through the night to bash out an agreement to end the conference. And finally, this morning, the COP president, Dr. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, declared success. I promised I would roll up my sleeves. And I promised I would be with you every step of the way. And you, my colleagues and friends, you did step up. But as COP28 comes to a close, the question remains, have countries stepped up high enough in this agreement to suppress the emissions heating our planet? So it's been known for an incredibly long time that fossil fuels are the main culprit of the greenhouse gases that have been driving up global temperatures. But in almost three decades of international climate diplomacy, it has been impossible to get countries to agree on a deal that specifically looks at fossil fuels in their entirety, so that's oil, gas and coal, and makes a commitment to move away properly from their use. Rachel Dobbs is a climate correspondent for The Economist, 
and is currently at the COP28 conference in Dubai. That has happened for the first time ever here in Dubai at the end of COP28. It's kind of surreal because the site where we are at in Dubai is within sight of the world's largest oil plant. The UAE, which is the host country, is one of the world's largest producers of oil. But they have come to an agreement in which they've committed themselves to transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in this critical decade. Rachel, you've been on the ground talking to delegates. I mean, you're literally standing outside the conference centre right now. Tell us how this agreement finally came together. So yes, I'm out in Dubai and it has been some pretty heavy days of negotiating here. This is now about 24 hours after the conference was actually meant to finish. They do normally overrun, but the last two nights has been delegates negotiating continuously through the night. Everyone is functioning on incredibly little sleep arguably even less than normal at these things. And it's been a week of pretty heavy fighting about the language that would make it into the final decision. Originally, a lot of countries wanted the language to be stronger. And it is important to note that what we currently have is full of caveats. And there are various complaints and concerns about that. Part of it is that it only applies to energy systems. So that does not apply to fossil fuels in the production of plastics and certain other areas. Countries do not all have to move at the same time. And the actions that they take will be determined by loads of different things, including sustainable development, including poverty eradication. And there are also other provisions and loopholes in the text, which means that in hard to abate sectors, you can rely on carbon capture and storage technologies. And there's going to be a lot of ongoing debate about what exactly that means and what the guardrails around those concepts are. It is tricky and it is heavily compromised language, but it is still really remarkable that it's even there at all. As you mentioned, burning the fossil fuels is one of the biggest drivers of climate change. So why is it so controversial to talk about phasing them out or transitioning away from them in a climate conference agreement? So to answer that, you have to get into a little bit of the backstory of these international climate meetings. And because they are done under the structure of the UN, at the beginning, they had to set up basically the structure on which they would vote. And that requires consensus from all countries to say, these are the conditions that we can have these negotiations going forward. So you have over 190 countries all trying to negotiate on the same thing. And just imagine how difficult it is to try and get them to all agree on exactly the same concept. And obviously within that, some countries, members of OPEC, other big fossil fuel producers, they have to agree to the language and they can essentially scupper the negotiations. And so it has been almost impossible up till this point to get them to say that actually the production of fossil fuels rather than the emissions produced by fossil fuels is a problem and needs to be cut down. And so how did those dynamics play out at this conference? So those dynamics were incredibly relevant and in play at this conference. As I mentioned earlier, the UAE is one of the biggest producers of oil in the world. It's a member of OPEC. A lot of its allies are big oil producing countries. And there was actually a lot of anger at the beginning and throughout about the presence of the fossil fuel industry here, about the fact that Sultan al-Jabbar, who is the COP president, also runs ADNOC, which is the state-run oil company. And when it became apparent that the focus was really heavily going to be on fossil fuels and that there was this huge push and there was this huge momentum to get particularly phase-out language into the final text, OPEC, which is the cartel of oil producing countries, 
essentially panicked and they sent a letter to all of their members which was leaked to the press which basically said that a decision at this COP might be reached with irreversible consequences for essentially their livelihoods and their ability to continue to produce oil and it really urged them to try and resist this in any way that they could and you saw that then playing out in the negotiations in particular Saudi Arabia did a lot of the kind of tactics that we've seen from them before and tried to delay and push and sort of stymie all the other areas of negotiation, of which there are many. You are making decisions on mitigation, which is actually cutting emissions, but also on adaptation, so how countries should adapt to better face off the consequences of climate change. You're making decisions on finance, so how that should be paid for, who should be responsible. And the sort of common maxim is that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So all the negotiations play off each other. And so the really obstructionist countries delayed the adaptation agreement for a very long time. And the adaptation agreement that was finally reached was very, very weak. And you're going to see a lot of anger about that from developing countries very legitimately. So there is almost nothing on finance, which is a real, real problem. But ultimately, it was obviously decided that enough of the other big players had moved, countries like China, America, India and enough of them were going to accept this kind of language that the oil producing countries felt they couldn't be out on their own on a limb and finally caved in. So is it safe to say that not everyone is optimistic about this final deal? No, everyone is not optimistic. Just actually as I came out of the final plenary to talk to you and after the decision had been gaveled through, a representative from the Alliance of Small Island States stood up and said that they had objections to the final text because they do not feel like the mitigation measures are strong enough. And they also said that the presidency in kind of quite an underhand way gaveled through the final result without them being in the room. And then beyond that, a lot of countries are very sad about the amount that they had to give up to get even this language into the text. Now, materially, what does this all mean about the global targets to limit warming? It's complicated. I think that this is definitely a step in the right direction. And the hope is that this will send a strong market signal that will then get businesses and investors to change or alter their behaviour, which is actually the thing that you saw coming out of the Paris Agreement. And that was the thing that really made the difference was that the Paris Agreement convinced businesses that a net zero world was coming, even though net zero was not actually in the text. And so, you know, sometimes these conferences can have bigger knock-on effect, even if their language is quite nebulous. Often the exact opposite happens and you get something that sounds like a really historic agreement, but because of the fact that UN treaties are relatively toothless, there's no real mechanism for enforcement. And we are still pretty strongly off track to cut emissions at anywhere near the speed required to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement to keep temperatures beneath 2 degrees Celsius and preferably to 1.5 degrees. So yeah, it's really, really tricky to tell, but this is definitely, I would say, a big step in the right direction off the back of a sort of not at all pure victory. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you can finally get some sleep. Thank you. And to hear more about what went on at COP and to learn a little bit about the alternative technologies that might help countries transition away from fossil fuels, you should listen to Babbage. The newest episode of our podcast on science and tech will be available to Economist Podcast Plus subscribers later today. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. 
where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. We young people, yes, we, I am young, are always being given advice on what to do with our money. It's the classic stuff. Cut unnecessary costs, start saving early, you've heard it all before. We're also being given tons of advice on how to invest our money. In the stable stuff, not the meme stocks, of course. And with all that, we're being bombarded with reminders that we're never, ever going to enjoy the returns that our parents once had. We're being confronted with a new, difficult set of investment choices. And apparently, most of us are choosing pretty badly. The biggest danger for young investors today is that financial markets don't contribute nearly as much to their savings as they might think they will. Josh Roberts is a finance correspondent for The Economist. So for the last 40 years, equity and bond markets have both done astonishingly well, much better than they have over the long run. So if you look at the last 40 years and think stock market returns and bond market returns will always be like that, you're likely to be disappointed because over the long run, they haven't been that good. The second danger is actually worse than the first, because it's not just that the last 40 years have been unusually good. It's that the amount prices have risen over them has made it actively more likely that returns in the future will be disappointing. Josh, why is this? So the person who's made this argument the best is a guy called Antti Ilmanen. He works for a hedge fund called AQR. And last year, he wrote a book called Investing Amid Low Expected Returns. And his argument is basically that over the last 40 years, interest rates fell. They went up and down, but mostly they fell for 40 years. And what you need to know about bond prices is that they move inversely to interest rates. So if interest rates fall, bond prices go up. So The fact that interest rates fell over the last 40 years meant that bond prices rose much more than they usually would. But as interest rates fell closer to zero, the room for them to fall further was limited because they can't really fall much below zero. So the fact that by 2021, interest rates were close to zero meant that there was limited room left for bond prices to keep going up. And last year, interest rates rose a fair bit, but nowhere near to the levels they were in the 1980s. So basically, the argument is that there's no more room for bond prices to rise in the same way as they did over the last 40 years. And if you swap out in that explanation, interest rates for dividend yields and earnings yields, those are the things that drive returns on the stock market, then you kind of have the same argument. It's that the prices going up over the last 40 years drove those yields down and there's no more room for them to fall now. You're painting an especially bleak picture for someone like me who's 26 and thinking about where on earth to put my money. Are there any positives here? There are some positives. So young people have better access to financial information than any previous generation. They have better access to low cost funds that track the market than any previous generation. And investment platforms are just a lot easier to use than they used to be. So you can invest from your phone. It's very easy. You do not need to be an expert to start investing your savings now. But there's some bad news as well. And it's that today's cohort of young investors are falling victim to some traps that are likely to make their returns even lower. I knew the bad news was coming. Tell me about these traps. 
So the first one's actually quite an old one. It's holding too much cash in people's portfolios. And investors tend to like this because cash is safe. The stock market goes up and down, bond market goes up and down. But if you keep your savings in cash, it's not going to go down. You'll earn a small interest rate from your bank account, but you know that it's definitely going to be there in the future. The bad thing about cash is that it tends over the long run not to earn enough to beat inflation. So the actual purchasing power of your savings goes down rather than up. Stock and bond prices, although they go down and up, tend over the long run to go up by much more than inflation and to actually grow your savings. So the second trap is kind of the mirror image of that. And it's that young investors tend not to have enough of their portfolio allocated to bonds. And bonds don't tend to do as well as stocks in the long run, but they tend to do a lot better than cash. So it would be better if younger investors owned more of them. And how about being more morally or ethically selective with where we choose to invest our money? So I think that's a very relevant question today because it's what a lot of young investors think about. And it is certainly how asset managers try to market themselves to millennials and Gen Z. You get all of these fund managers saying, we invest according to sustainability criteria, according to good governance standards, things that will produce social goods. The thing I would say about that is the asset management industry is trying to sell you products. So when they say we're creating products that are designed to improve the environment or achieve ethical societal gains... That is a marketing tool, and they are trying to gather your money in a fund. So you just need to bear that in mind when you think you are investing according to ethical criteria. And if you do your due diligence and find out actually these fund managers really are investing towards aims that I think are a moral good, then absolutely fine. You still need to toss up the fact that part of what you're doing, rather than seeking investment returns is probably sacrificing those returns in order to achieve your ethical aims. And if you're happy to do that, that's absolutely fine. But in a world where your investment returns are already likely to be quite disappointing, that is a difficult toss-up to make. Josh, I'm not going to lie. This is a maze. Trying to figure out where I should and shouldn't put my money. Trying to figure out how I'm going to get rich, rich. If there's one piece of advice that I should take from you today, what is it? Start saving as early as you can into low-cost tracker funds that just track the overall global stock market. Because then over time, your savings will go up with the global stock market, which goes up and down, but tends to go up quite a lot over the long run. And you will capture those returns. And the best asset young investors have is time. So if you're doing that for 40 years until retirement, that's the best shot you have of saving enough for a decent one. And getting rich, rich. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. The 1965 book Countryman's Cooking has many strengths. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. If you wish to know how to brain a goose, it is peerless. In short, put its head in a bag and bludgeon it briskly. If you want to know how to behead a pheasant or disembowel a rabbit, it's absolutely invaluable. If, however, you want to learn how to make pastry, it's much less helpful. As its author, W.M.W. Fowler, explains, as far as an actual pastry recipe went, I cannot help you. Instead, Mr. Fowler suggested another method for making pastry. Take one telephone, he advised, ring one nice female neighbour, liberally baste her with drink, a couple of stiff gins is best, 
Add some seasoning, a liberal sprinkling of blandishments and flattery. Don't kiss her until she's carried out her duties. And soon enough, you would have an excellent dish. Cookery books are odd things. Unlike many books, they can be very profitable. Literary reviews might lavish all their attention on literary novels, but the real potboilers of the publishing industry are those in which celebrities smile at salad. One of the odd things about them is people do buy them, but then they often don't use them. Industry insiders think that if someone cooks a single recipe from a single book, then that book is a success. In some ways, the puzzle is less that they sell well, particularly given the availability of online recipes, that they sell at all. As a genre, cookery books arrived relatively late because for centuries, those who could cook couldn't write while those who could write couldn't cook. Some of the first cookery recipes we have came in these strange books called Books of Secrets, funny volumes that blended one part cookery with two parts pure sorcery. One 16th century volume advised its readers on everything from how to conserve quinces, add sugar, to how to comfort the heart and take away melancholy, yet more sugar, to a somewhat less appetising entry on recognising all the urines that betoken death. In short, if your urine is red, black, green or blue, be worried and possibly also get out of the kitchen. Most people don't consider cookery books to be magic anymore, but they do remain as evocative as any spell, able to conjure up worlds with just a handful of words. Open a Yotam Ottolenghi recipe, run your eye down its esoteric ingredients lists with their pomegranate molasses and za'atar and rose harissa, and you're instantly transported to the Middle East, or maybe just to somewhere smug in North London that sells these things. Open the 1885 Jottings from Madras cookery book, which describes itself as a treatise for Anglo-Indian exiles, and the reader finds themselves instead at the elbow of an English housewife in the southern tip of India at the height of the British Raj. Cookery books rose with the middle classes, and one of their most pervasive flavours remains that of social anxiety. The chapters from a 1922 cookery book advise the nervous reader on how correctly to prepare a little supper after the play, a little supper before the play, a motor excursion luncheon, and a shooting party luncheon. Take one play, one hamper, one motor car, blend with a little aspiration, and enjoy your new middle-class life. Oh, and for those who enjoyed too many luncheons, it also offered a blunter chapter for the too fat. Though cookery books also catered to those on the way down, one 1938 cookery book, after observing that many people these days had to survive without their cooks, perhaps even had to survive in bed-sitting rooms, then went on to explain how many days one should hang a partridge for before roasting it. Quite where one should hang a partridge in a bed-sit, it did not say. In 2017, Al-Qaeda started to produce a magazine aimed at the good jihadi bride, it offered problem pages, including advice on how not to feel jealous of those 79 virgins in heaven. It offered home tips. When washing up glasses, it said, it's best to put them in the water first. And of course, it offered recipes. The recipe for jihadi mashed potatoes explained to its eager readers that for a truly successful mash, one should first boil the potatoes and then mash them. As Elizabeth Kendall, the mistress of Girton, put it, one suspects that this was written by men. 
So cookery books seem to be just teaching us about cooking. In truth, they're pretty much telling us about everything else. Our lives are full of difficult things and disorder and urine that turns unexpectedly blue. But then there's always cookery books. And these can give us order and joy and, if we do them right, a happy ending and something lovely to eat as well. So yes, there are regrets and pains, but there is also rosemary to be chopped and potatoes to peel and roast chickens to be taken from the oven. Take one helping of sorrows, a sousant of social anxiety. Add a powerful desire for comfort and begin. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.